Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good news and that it's not just for children, it's even for us, that you're inviting all of us into that friendship of love with you through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, Lord. Would you help us to remember the gospel this morning? And would you help us to not be ashamed of the gospel this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last week, um, Pastor John gave us this sweeping introduction to the book of Romans and uh, to chapter one in particular. And in contrast, um, my uh, task today is going to be to zoom in, uh, not to zoom out, but to zoom in on just a few verses. And I really want to drill deeper into two particularly important questions that come up in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. So the first question is, what is the gospel? Like, what is it? It's so easy to think that we know it and we take it for granted, but we, but we actually don't know how we would answer that question. Second, why did Paul say that he was not ashamed of the gospel? All right, so what is the gospel and why did Paul say that he's not ashamed of the gospel? Um, now, would you please, if you have not yet, um, open up to Romans chapter 1. Um, John Stott refers to the book of Romans as the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. But what is this gospel that Romans sets forth? Of course, the word gospel simply means good news, as I said to the kids. But what is the nature of the good news? What is it about? What does it accomplish? Well, according to Romans 1, the gospel issues from the nature of God. It concerns Jesus Christ, and it has the power to justify the unjust by faith in Christ. Now, this summary is actually proved very easily by the scriptures. I'll show you how um, through the most famous verse in the entire Bible. And this is the most succinct summary of the gospel. It testifies to all three of these things. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world. So notice that, that God's actions are about to flow from God's nature, from God's heart, from his nature, his loving nature. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So the gospel issues from the nature of God and it concerns God's son, Jesus Christ. He is the substance of God's gift to the world, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the effect of the gospel. For those who are justly perishing, but who will believe in Jesus, it offers forgiveness and eternal life. Again, the gospel issues from the nature of God. It concerns Jesus Christ, and it has the power to justify the unjust by faith in Jesus. And all three of these claims in John 3.16 are also on full display here in Romans 1. Look down with me, if you would, because here we see um, that the gospel issues from the nature of God. That's why Paul refers to the gospel as the gospel of God in verse 1 of Romans 1. And then in verse 3... He says that the good news is a message, what? Concerning his son. In verse 7, he echoes and reconfigures the Jewish Shema, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. 
by pronouncing a blessing that contains both God the Father and God the Son. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this phrase is striking because sometimes we think of Jesus as having a sort of monopoly on grace and peace when it comes to the members of the Trinity, uh, and of God the Father as being like, you know, particularly judgmental and cranky. Uh, but this view is a distortion of the truth, as we will see presently. Now, look with me, if you would, at one of our key verses at Romans 1, 17. This uh, verse contains one of the most consequential phrases in all of the New Testament, in all of theology. It says, for in it, the righteousness of God. In Greek, this phrase is dekaiosune theao. The righteousness of God is revealed. And here we need to get a bit technical for a minute because in the Greek language, uh, the nouns righteousness and justice are actually the same word. So our translators decide when to use one or the other. So the righteousness of God is also the justice of God. And this attribute of holy justice that causes God to be wrathful toward all ungodliness and unrighteousness for men, as Paul goes on to describe at length in Romans 1 verses 18 and following. Pastor John will preach on that next week. Those kinds of passages, they sound scary to us, but we have to keep in mind that God's wrath is not some kind of bad or immoral thing or some kind of character defect, right? As John Stott points out, the wrath of God is his pure and perfect antagonism toward evil. God's wrath is his pure and perfect antagonism for evil. If God didn't have this pure and perfect antagonism toward evil, he wouldn't be God. However, the beauty of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is that through Jesus' atoning death and resurrection, Jesus has borne all the wrath and condemnation that we deserved in our place, right? That's the gospel, as the hymn puts it. Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. In other words, through the cross, God made a way for his mercy to triumph over his judgment. They're both important, God's mercy and God's judgment. But his mercy triumphed over his judgment, as James 2.13 says. So that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, Romans 3.26. Perhaps my favorite question in the Anglican Catechism, and I like the whole catechism, but question 37 might be my favorite question, and it asks this, what does Holy Scripture tell us about the character of God? And it answers, God is both loving and holy. God mercifully redeems fallen creation while righteously opposing all sin and evil. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of God's holy love. Amen? So through Jesus Christ, there's a revelation, as it says here in Romans 1.17, there's a revelation of the righteousness or the justice of God. But alongside of that, at the same time, there's a revelation of his merciful saving power. Now, all of this is packed into this little phrase, dekaiosune theao, here in verse 17. But there's more. 
because this phrase can also be translated, not just the righteousness of God, but the righteousness from God. As in the righteousness, the righteous status that God confers upon sinful people who put their faith in Christ. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians 3.9 when he says, says he longs to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, not a righteousness of his own, an alien righteousness, as the great reformer Martin Luther would put it. It comes from the outside. It's foreign, this status, this gift of God by which we have eternal life. Now, this word righteousness comes from the Roman law courts. After weighing all the evidence, the judge would pronounce uh, the, the person in the court either righteous or condemned. So these are opposite terms. You're, you're righteous or you're condemned. Now, remember my message to the kids um, that our deeds had separated us from God's perfect presence and that God uh, wanted to bring sinful human beings back into a loving relationship with himself. But do you notice the, the quandary here? It's almost like um, God's uh, attributes are in, uh, are in tension with each other because in God's love and God's mercy, he wants to be back in relationship with us. But in God's holiness and God's justice, you know, he's not going to just let uh, what is evil come back into fellowship with him, abide in his presence. So what is evil, what is unjust needs to be dealt with in order to come back into loving relationship with God. And it's through the cross of Christ that God accomplished this seemingly impossible feat. Through the gospel, we might put it this way. We might say that God reveals in the gospel, this is what God reveals, the just way that he justifies the unjust. Or, or we might put it another way. We might say through the gospel, God reveals the righteous way that he righteouses, if that were a word in English, it is in Greek, but he righteouses, justifies the unrighteous. Or we might put it this way. This is kind of more how I said to the kids. The gospel is the perfect way that God restores the imperfect into his perfect presence. Amen. That is, that is glorious good news. That's the best news that's ever been preached, right? This is, this is good news, and it's the gift of God, not by our works so that no one can boast. Now, we, should, we, we, might be, we might be thinking the question, okay, so you talked about the righteousness of God, and you talked about the righteousness from God. Now, which is the right translation? Because in English, we tend to like, we tend to, excuse me, dislike ambiguous phrases. Uh, but in Greek, um, they love that. They love that sort of stuff. And so um, since both of these ideas seem bound up to one another in the theology of Romans, and since Paul teases out both ideas at different places in the rest of his letters, this double meaning is almost certainly in view. After all, as the Anglican theologian Austin Ferrer has written, God has no attitudes which are not actions. The two things go together. His attitudes, his characteristics are always made manifest. And when Jesus dies on the cross, it's God's love and justice being made manifest on the screen of the earth. All right, so far we have answered the question, what is the gospel? According to the way that Romans 1 puts it, the beautiful way that Romans 1 puts it. And we learned 
from this chapter that God, that the gospel issues from the nature of God for God so loved the world, as it says in John 3, 16, it concerns Jesus Christ, as we saw in Romans 1, 3, and it has the power to justify the unjust by faith in Christ, as we see in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Now let's move on to our second question, and here we're going to linger a little bit longer. I want to ask this question, why did Paul emphasize that he was not ashamed of the gospel? Right? In verse 16, he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, that is, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul wants to tell them. Now, what does this mean, right? It seems almost like an ironic phrase, seeing as how it's through the gospel that God has definitively acted so as to remove our shame. So if the word gospel means good news, then why would we be ashamed of it? And Paul's words here indicate that there must have been some kind of pressure at this time to turn away from the gospel truth or to set aside the ministry of the gospel for lesser pursuits. Now, one of those things could be, well, you could be arrested. And of course, uh, Paul would know that uh, firsthand. Um, I wonder if some of us have become ashamed of the gospel for much lesser reasons. Are we still praying for our lost friends and family members? When's the last time you shared your testimony with one of them? Are we keeping up with the frank and blessed tools that we learned in the summer evangelism school? Throughout his letters, um, I want to say that Paul gives at least three reasons why Christians, both then and now, may have been tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. The first is uh, its offense to our intellect, the gospel's offense to our intellect. The second is its offense to our pride. And the third is its offense to our cultural superiority. So first of all, people were tempted to be ashamed of the gospel during Paul's day because of its offense to our intellect. Now, I wonder if some of us have grown up in the church and have never really like taken a step back and just examined just how bizarre this message really is, right? Because after all, the gospel proclaims that the king of kings came down from glory to be crucified. Right? It says that the Jewish Messiah, the long-awaited son of David, was publicly executed as a common criminal by Rome and later, quote, declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, as it says in Romans 1.4. So the gospel was not some sort of like new philosophy or new set of morality that could be debated about and proved through cleverly devised arguments. What the gospel was, was eyewitness news proclaimed to the world. And I believe that it was the kind of news that's just too bizarre not to be true. That the crucifixion of a sinless man who was actually God incarnate has somehow paid for the sins of the world and he's proven this message definitively by rising from the dead on the third day. And all of this happens, Romans says, according to the scriptures. Only after the resurrection did the disciples see all these texts in the scriptures that pointed to the gospel. They couldn't conceive of it before then. It was just too wild. 
Now this narrative was not easily ingested by the Jews or Gentiles. It was widely believed by the Jews that the Messiah was coming to reign, not to suffer and die. And as for the Gentiles, the whole idea of the resurrection was particularly laughable. That's why Paul declares elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, that the gospel is, quote, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And so maybe that's what tempted people to be ashamed of it. It was this strange message, an offense to our intellect. Brothers and sisters, at the same time, Paul and Peter and James and John and over 500 other witnesses, they knew what they had seen. It wasn't some sort of like collective illusion. And they would not be silenced after they saw what they saw, after they touched what they touched. And in less than 300 years, a strikingly short amount of time, Christianity would go from being this fringe minority religious movement to toppling all paganism and philosophy and to become what Cambridge scholar Rebecca McLaughlin refers to as the greatest intellectual movement in human history. That could have never been anticipated at this time because the gospel was an offense to the intellect. The second reason why people were tempted to be ashamed of the gospel is because, this might be the, the kind of most common reason, because it's an offense to human pride. Right? Because the gospel declares that we're all guilty before God. Right? Before we can know the good news, there's, there's also the bad news. Jesus said he, he came to those who know that they were sick, to those who thought they were well. He didn't have anything to offer them, right? So the great physician came for those who know they're sick. The gospel declares we're all guilty before God. We're all sick, that none of us are righteous in ourselves, that none of us has the power to save ourselves, to lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps. So in this spiritual state of neediness and moral destitution, only God could save us. And this message is a straight-up assault on our pride. So think of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Uh, that Pastor John just read for us, right? Think of the Pharisee. In his pride, he just can't stop comparing himself to other people, right? We do this all the time, and he flatters himself into believing that he actually comes out looking pretty good when he compares himself to other people, and, and so he comes to God in prayer with his hands full, you might say, full of all the righteous deeds that he believed gave him rights and privileges in the presence of God. And now, meanwhile, look at the second man. Look at the tax collector. He comes to God with nothing but the empty hands of faith. And he says, it says that he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast. Instead, he throws himself on the mercy of the court. He prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His words and actions remind me of the great hymn, Rock of Ages, the verse that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. This is the message here of this parable in Luke 18. 
And as the parable concludes, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this man went down to his house justified. He went down to his house righteous, being made righteous rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters, straight from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it leaves no room for human pride or boasting. Right? All of us would like to say we've earned our way into heaven. You know, that we're only getting what our good deeds have earned us. But the gospel contradicts all our self-justifying narratives. Have you ever come to God with nothing but the empty hands of faith, knowing like, man, I'm sinful. Like the only reason you would listen to me is because of your mercy. The only reason you would forgive me is because of your mercy. Have you ever thrown yourself on the mercy of the court in that way? If I'm honest, um, I think even after I was saved, I feel like I spent some years dabbling with theologies and theories uh, where I tried to retain like some measure of credit for myself, right? Some grounds for boasting in my salvation. But guys, this was simply unbiblical. In Romans 3.27, Paul asks, what then becomes of our boasting? And he answers simply, it is excluded. Because in exalting a crucified Savior, the gospel also crucifies human pride. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And for that reason, we might be tempted to be ashamed of it, especially if we want to put ourselves on a pedestal. But according to the wider corpus of Paul's letters, there's a third reason why we might be ashamed of the gospel. And this one doesn't get much attention. So I want you guys to lean in a little bit. And uh, we'll call it the Galatians 2 reason. And that is that it's an offense to our sense of cultural superiority. Will you flip forward in your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 2? I want to linger here for a couple minutes. Here in Galatians 2, the Apostle Paul tells the story of his miraculous ministry among the Gentiles in Antioch and how the gospel of Jesus was breaking down cultural barriers between Jews and Gentiles so much so that they were willing to eat together, which was usually forbidden by the Jews. And even the Apostle Peter, when he comes to visit, he throws caution to the wind and he just decides to pull up a chair and join the multi-ethnic party. Uh, but after several days of breaking bread with his Gentile brethren as equals, some of Peter's Jewish friends from back in Jerusalem arrive in Antioch. And their sense of cultural superiority and their pressure, their special emphasis on circumcision and food laws, these cultural norms, led Peter astray, causing him to pull away from the fellowship he'd been enjoying with the Gentiles. Now this betrayal of his brothers and sisters of the gospel was so scandalous that it moved Paul to confront Peter publicly, causing the greatest public conflict between the apostles in the entire New Testament. Paul writes in verse 11 and following, but when Cephas, which is just another name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face 
because he stood condemned. Now remember, condemnation is the opposite of justification. That's how serious Peter's error was in Paul's mind. It was a contradiction of the gospel. He continues, for before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. In other words, Peter was ashamed of the gospel. He was ashamed of the implications of the gospel. Fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So Peter's leading others, others astray, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And Paul says in verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So, so Paul is saying very clearly, Peter and Barnabas were denying the gospel with their actions, with their cultural superiority, even if they would still want to affirm it through their words. So Paul said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, that's what you were doing before your friends from Jerusalem came, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, now why are you telling them that they need to be circumcised, that they need to keep the food laws? So simply put, the gospel is an offense to our cultural superiority. And it's this third temptation of being ashamed of the gospel that Paul seems to be referring to again here in Romans 1.16. I have several reasons for this interpretation, but let me just mention a few. In the first place, almost any commentary will point out that Paul is writing to a Roman church that has a mixture of Jewish and Gentile believers, and that both sides are in danger of pride and dividing along ethnic lines. Bishop Neal came and spoke at our seminary um, when John and I were at Trinity, and. Um, uh, encouraged us all to reread Romans as a pastoral letter that's trying to bring together uh, two divided ethnic groups. And uh, I, I encourage you to give Romans a, a read along those lines, because I think it's an accurate um, interpretation of the situation. Second, listen again to the verses in the surrounding context, right? The way that we know what Paul's referring to here, because he talks about many different ways we could be ashamed of the gospel, um, the surrounding verses give us a clue. So he says in verse 14 and following, he says, I'm under obligation to both the Greeks and the, to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So he's emphasizing his kind of go-between peacemaker ministry. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. Why? Because that's what their community is like. Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's universally offered to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, it sounds to me like Paul is reminding the Roman church up front that the gospel crosses ethnic boundaries and that we shouldn't be ashamed of that, right? So there was a certain shame the Gentile believers had with this fellowship with their Jewish uh, brothers and sisters. There was a certain shame that the Jewish brothers and sisters had about their Gentile counter counterparts. For this reason, Paul actually begins the book of Romans with a bit of like theological demolition work, right? So in the second half of Romans 1, he launches into a renunciation of all the kinds of sins that are most indicative of the Gentiles. And uh, just as we think that one ethnic group is somehow more fundamentally prone to sin than the other, he follows that up with this indictment of the sinful tendencies of the Jewish believers in Romans 2. And only when we get to Romans 3, um, and particularly verse 23 and 24, does he finally 
level them both with the twin gospel truths that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. All have sinned and all have the ability to be justified by his grace as a gift through faith in Jesus. Now, how about you? Are you willing to have your own pride and biases rebuked by this gospel that Paul preaches? Or do you prefer to act as if the sword of God's word cuts against somebody else's in-group, somebody else's ethnic group, but it only cuts in one direction. It's not a two-sided sword. I could say much more about Romans in this regard, but to sum up the point, it was cultural elitism and ethnic pressure that caused Peter to be ashamed of the implications of the gospel, ashamed of the blood-bought Gentile brothers that Christ had brought into his life, not by works of the law, but through their shared faith in Jesus Christ. When Peter drew back, he was putting his Jewish ethnic and cultural identity before his identity as a fellow Christian with the church of the redeemed, the people of God. Likewise, the power of the gospel made a single family out of the Jewish and Gentile believers here in Rome. Meanwhile, they're tempted to be ashamed of the gospel by dividing around, among, around cultural lines. We see more about this later on in, in, in Romans. But brothers and sisters, this is really important for us to understand. There is no camp. There are no ethnic ties or political affiliation that runs as deep as the blood of Jesus. A few weeks ago, Nader Awad said that what unites us is infinitely greater than what divides us. And that is the truth of the gospel, brothers and sisters. There's no group that we might own or identity we might want to identify with or celebrate that has even half the claim on us as the body of Christ and as the blood of Jesus. And friends, we would all do well to remember this during election season. In fact, there's something serious that I want to talk to you about as your pastor, and I hope you'll hear me out as one who loves you and prays for you consistently. Because one trend I find today among Christians that's particularly disturbing is how, I want to say, our sympathies, our compassion, often fall along political or racial lines rather than falling in line with the gospel. Do you notice this trend going on even among believers? For example, political conservatives, um, we know that they are prone to defend the Second Amendment rights of white people who feel threatened in their homes or even people carrying guns openly on the streets. And in these cases, the stock response of political conservatives seems to be a measure of sympathy. So even before all the information comes out, we say, well, that's their right. That's their Second Amendment right. However, when similar cases arise with black or brown people defending their home or their lives, the stock response seems to be skepticism from the same group or the assumption that some kind of guilt is there even before all the information comes out. Did you see this disparity in our stock responses? Are they not rooted in racial bias or some sort of choice um, of news network that is shaping us rather than the truth of the gospel? 
And brothers and sisters, why is there this hermeneutic of suspicion when ethnic minorities, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, share about their personal experiences with racism? I mean, I understand skepticism toward the liberal media, but that's no excuse for dismissing the pain of our actual brothers and sisters. This is our family, beloved. This is our family. We need to listen to one another. Now, on the other hand, because the gospel cuts both ways, and we see this so beautifully in the book of Romans, I've noticed among ethnic minorities and white progressives, we've seen this extraordinary sympathy for the loss of black lives in this season, and rightly so. You've heard me say, uh, controversially, that I affirm the slogan, Black Lives Matter. I think it's a good slogan, even though I believe Christians ought to distance themselves from many of the methods and ideologies of the organization that bears that name. But I think it's a good slogan. After all, Jesus didn't just say all people matter. He said Samaritans matter, right? He said women matter. He said children matter, right? And so if someone's devalued, Jesus wasn't afraid to affirm them in particular. But often, I found in this season, with that sympathy for the loss of black lives, there's a corresponding shameful disregard for any other lives that are being lost in the midst of the racial tension. And if we think that only instigators are getting beaten to a pulp, or that only bad people are getting their businesses set on fire, or that only corrupt cops are being killed, I would call that willful ignorance at best. Where are the white conservative Christians who are willing to call out police brutality as inherently wrong, whether or not the victim has a criminal record? Now, where are the black and brown Christians or the white liberals who are willing to defend the name of an innocent police officer who's been killed in the line of duty? Now, my point here is not so much to, to point out this or that example, because we know that all these stories that have come out are complex in their own way. But my point is to point out the disparity in our stock sympathies. Why do they so often fall on racial and political lines when, as Nader pointed out, the reality is that what unites us is infinitely deeper than what divides us? And since Paul was willing to get specific with the divisions in the Church of Rome and speak about them at length, especially later in the letter, I feel compelled to linger here a bit longer before we end. Because I think part of the problem with the growing divide, even between Christians, is that we're not actually engaging with the same information all the time. If you want proof of that, I encourage you to watch five videos about the Breonna Taylor story from CNN and then turn around and watch five more videos from Fox News. It's incredible. It's like a completely different story, even on the level of the most basic details. Now these news outlets, we have to admit, are driven by profits and preset ideologies that their customers like. So if we wanna know the truth, we have to be willing to read or watch widely, weighing the claims of both sides. And that's not to say that that, that every side is equally valid. As Christians, we're not relativists. It's just there's simply too much slant everywhere to go on just engaging only with our favorite network. But worse than the ideological bias of the main news outlets is the proliferation of misinformation, fake news, and one-sided memes on social media. If you're someone who spends a lot of time on social media, I, I have three pastoral words from you, and John Hall could probably give you 10, because uh, he's really fired up about this right now. First, I encourage you to watch the film, The Social Dilemma on Netflix, 
which explains the kind of manipulation, misinformation, and predatory algorithms behind this industry. Right? It's not set up to deliver us truth. Second, consider taking a long break from social media, especially if you find yourself prone to anxiety and depression, since studies consistently find that social media increases both. And third, if you're not willing to take a break, then I urge you with the words of Bishop, Bishop Stuart Ruck to at least as a Christian, pray more than you post. Pray more than you post. I especially urge you to do this if you find yourself opening up Facebook and Instagram in the morning before you've even taken time to be with Jesus. Pick up our phone, get lost in that world, and we forget that we are in God's world. All right. I've said a lot to our divided church in our divided day, rooted, I believe, in a theology of the gospel that we find in Romans. Finally, brothers and sisters, as we come to the table today for Holy Communion, this is a sign, it's a seal of our unity in Christ. I encourage you to be mindful of your brothers and sisters. Remember those who you're sharing the cup with. Remember those who you're breaking the loaf with. And perhaps especially remember to pray blessings over those with whom you know you have deep political differences. But don't stop there. Remember also our unity in Christ with fellow believers around the globe, that we're part of a multinational, multilingual, multi-ethnic body of Christ. Remember even our union with the saints in heaven who've gone before us into glory. Remember to hear their voices on the topics of the day as we join our voices, as the liturgy says, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, including the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul, who were eventually recon reconciled and became brothers in martyrdom, who forever sing with us and pray with us and commune with us to the glory of God's name. Amen.